High Desert, High Desert Church. Good to see you again. It's always a privilege to open the Word of God with you, especially in the series on the family. You know, one of the things I appreciate about Pastor Todd's teaching is his desire to provide outside resources for you to take the ideas that are shared from this stage home with you and explore them further. And so, based on the theme that we're going to pick up today, I want to recommend a resource to you. It's a book entitled The Servant by James Hunter. Uh, It's what I call a Christian-esque book. The author seems to be a believer for sure, but his intent was to write a leadership book. Actually, it was a bestseller uh, in the business community. He does not provide a clear explanation of the gospel, although he shares different aspects uh, of the gospel in in the book. And he takes a a fictional narrative approach, which is kind of weird, uh, but it's very interesting. It's an easy read, and I recommend it for its leadership principles and the author's clear distinction between power and authority, which is something I want to address in, uh, in this message today. You doing okay? All right, just want to make sure. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, in, these, in, in, in this room uh, today would probably say, I want to grow spiritually. I could have you raise your hand, but I'll assume that even those of you who are a little indifferent to spiritual growth probably raise your hand at a peer pressure, right? And, um, and yet fewer of you would say, I want to change. One day when our son was, I don't know, like four years old, he was crying and his mother said, what are you crying about? And he said, mommy, I don't want to grow up. He was evidently really loving that stage of his life and he didn't want things to change. But at least he was consistent. He didn't want to grow up and he didn't want to change. But when you grow, that's exactly what happens. You change. That's been true for our family. You know, when we arrived at uh, HDC in 1984, seems like a, a lifetime ago because it actually was a lifetime ago. When we got here, we had one child, Danette, our oldest, was two years old, and her sister Lindsay and brother Drew would show up here in the HD over the next few years. But when they were kids, we put almost 400,000 miles on two vans, crisscrossing the country and bonding as a family. And then we made a mistake. We blinked. And now we have 11 grandchildren and Danette and Lindsay and their families are part of HCC's leadership team and Drew's family lives in the Phoenix area. He's the CEO of a FinTech company in the healthcare space. But as you can see, our family, like your family, is a great example of what? When you grow, you change. You know, that's true spiritually. When you grow in Christ, 
you change. And some of you are so set in your ways, you're resisting changing. And some of you who resist changing your life are actually proud of that. You know, it's, it's like that old line, that's just the way I am. It's that mindset. You resist changing. And you think you're doing fine spiritually, but you resist changing. And I just want to say categorically that God loves you unconditionally, like you know that. But he's not content with where you're at right now. He's looking to make changes in all of us. And so we all need to be able to say, Lord, change me. Even though we might not know how he's going to do it yet. It's that flexibility that we have to bring to the table every day. And you know what the truth is about changing? It starts where it starts at home. Your house is not a showcase. It's a workplace. It's a laboratory for personal growth and spiritual change. See, it's a place where you not only grow, but it's a place where you learn how to grow after you've left a house. Back in the year 2000, uh, our son Drew and I were given tickets to the NBA Finals and we're a big basketball family and uh, Drew grew up during the Kobe era and so he was a huge fan. I, I thought these tickets would be in the nosebleeds, but who cares, right? It's the Finals, so let's go. But when I glanced at the tickets, they read section 111, row one. Folks, that's lower level, center court, row one. And I thought, when I read that, I thought, man, we're gonna be on the floor. But then we got to the then Staples Center and we realized <laughs> that there was a row A and a row B in front of row one. Now don't get me wrong, we were very close. <laughs> we were pretty excited to see Shaq and Kobe play that, that up close uh, any day of the week and in the finals, certainly. But we learned there was a front row and then there was a front row. <laughs> and I share that to say we've often described your oikos here. You've heard that word, right? We've often described that as your what? Your front row. It's 8 to 15 people whom God has supernaturally and strategically given the best seats in the house to see how you live and to hear what you say. But when we talk about your immediate family, we're not just talking about the front row. We're talking about the front row. See, God has given all of us more than a row one. He's given us a row A. And so if you're like me and think your row one is important, then what does that say about your row A? This is super important. I mean, that's why an entire series of messages and a conference is dedicated to this theme. 
Yeah, row A is, is very important. Look at Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse one. And so many of these passages are well known. I just want to remind you of them once again. It says there that children need to obey their parents and the Lord for this is right. Verse two, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Verse four, fathers do not exasperate your children, instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now what that tells us first of all is that parenting is a process. And if and when you're successful with the parenting process, it ends in depression. You know what I'm saying? See, as parents, we commit incredible emotional and financial capital in order to attempt to raise up independent, self-productive members of God's kingdom. But it's kind of weird. Because then when we accomplish this incredibly difficult feat, we cry tears of sadness. In fact, some of you are crying in your life these days. I was gonna say you're crying right now, just that might be true, but if not right now, certainly these days. And, and your child hasn't even started kindergarten yet. But just imagining that someday they're gonna leave home is too much for you to take, it's enough to ruin your day. And so here's something that I want you to remember. Stop panicking about the future and start preparing for it. Stop panicking about it and start preparing for it. And don't fear it, have faith in it. See, if you're close to becoming empty nesters, you may be wondering, and we've had parents approaching that phase of of their family's life, they've asked us, well, what is it like when your kids leave? Maybe you've recently become empty nesters and your friends probably ask you the same thing. You know, you guys coping okay? Uh, I would just tell you it's been 19 years for Cheryl and I since our youngest left home to go to college. And Cheryl and I are still doing fine. And we would say, yes, it is hard, but not for very long. It's a big change, but it doesn't have to be a bad change. In fact, it should actually become a good one. And it should become a good one rather quickly for everyone involved. See, the change in a healthy relationship between a parent and a minor child to a healthy relationship between a parent and an adult child is almost immediate. It changes almost immediately. But the process of preparing for that moment or preparing for that change gradually evolves over the time that you have with them at home. The first time our kids came home from college, we recognized a change that had occurred in their absence. And it was like weird. And we knew it would never be the same between us. Time goes by so quickly, more quickly, the older you get, and so that is why this series is entitled Don't Blink, because if you do, you're gonna be left behind. And scientists tell us that the longer you live, the faster time seems to go. This perceived acceleration of time, and you know what I'm talking about. 
every year Christmas gets here sooner. Now, time obviously does not go any faster this year than it went last year, but it seems to have, and they tell us that it's due to neurophysiological organization of similar data. Whatever that means. But inside this furious blast of events that take place during the growing up years, you have the opportunity to build spiritual influence that doesn't just last for the time your children are at home but the kind of spiritual influence that can last a lifetime. And so that's what my charge was, that's what my assignment was in this series, was to give you some ideas about how you can build spiritual authority in your family. It'll pay off later, I promise you. So I have just a couple of thoughts. First, stay in your lane and trust the Lord. Stay in your lane and trust the Lord. In fact, if you trust the Lord, you will stay in your lane because God has prescribed our roles for us. See, when you think about it, control is the opposite of trust. If I don't trust you, I feel like I need to control you. We're all familiar with that old adage to let go and let God. But that requires trust. And you'll never let go if you don't trust God to hold on. And that's why controlling people tend to migrate out of their lanes. The lane that God has given us or the roles that God has given us in the family. Our fears cause us to not only want to control what happens in our lane, they, or we probably should admit that there's a little control freak in all of us, but we want to control what's going on in everyone else's lane too. But statistically, the more controlling we are, the more health issues related to stress we have, the more relational conflict we experience, and all of that simply from not staying in our lane and trusting the Lord. So what does that look like at home, what does that look like in a marriage? What does that look like for parents? Well, raising kids is uh, a team sport. And uh, we, we are reminded of that often in the scripture. It's a team sport, especially between two parents. Biblical marriage, marriage, could be defined as two drivers in different lanes rolling alongside each other on the same road and pursuing the same destination. But before I get into that, let me explain something. I, I recognize that many of you are single parents and some others of you are trying to raise your kids with no help from a spouse who is still at home. And so you're working essentially as a single parent too. But the fact that you don't have a spouse or a cooperative spouse doesn't mean that you don't have a team. Hagar is the first single parent mentioned in the Bible. It's back in Genesis 21. And she represents people who were victims of their circumstances and abandoned by their spouse. But even in the midst of all of the ugliness of that story, a merciful God 
took care of her and her son. The widow of Zarephath is another example. Um, it's, It's an example of another single parent whose family and economic issues had caused her to give up any hope of ever having a meaningful life again. And that story's in 1 Kings 17. And what God did is he sent Elijah to give her hope again and to provide her the resources that she and her son would need to keep going. And, and those two women are examples of an underlying biblical principle. God always provides team support when we need it, regardless of what we experience in this idyllic marriage family idea that we came into the marriage with, when it begins to crumble, God always backfills with support for those who seek him. He is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 68, verse 5, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, that's God in his holy dwelling. And so I just wanted to throw that out there so that, number one, you don't stop listening if you're a single parent. Number two, you don't give up hope that God has a plan, a very exciting plan for your future. But every team member has a role. We know that in sports. Regardless of what your favorite sport is, you can think of your favorite athlete and you recognize that every member of every team has a role or has a lane. And so that is this first challenge that I'm giving you today. Just stay in your lane. And that means you have to trust that the role God gave you is the best one for you. One of the main reasons, (laughs) bless you, sister, That's, that's awesome. But one of the main reasons a marriage fails, get this, one of the main reasons a marriage fails is because of lane changes. A biblical marriage should not experience any significant conflict over who's in which lane because the Bible spells it out for us. And Cheryl and I have experienced this. You know, the temptation to switch lanes. And we just, and that has created conflict at times. But we've always had to remind ourselves that we are not the other's enemy. We are teammates. The one God gave me is Cheryl. So that together we could defeat the common enemy that we share. And if she were here uh, speaking to you tonight, she would tell you, as I'm going to, that the greatest tool we have to generate that type of synergy is prayer. And I can tell you that because the Bible says it. But I can tell you that from personal experience. We've been married 43 years and we would both say with a smile on our face and we'd say it very enthusiastically, we both find mutual accountability to God by praying together. And I don't know what the statistics are, but I would tell you this, that if you would take this very simple discipline as a husband and a wife and pray out loud together every morning for a few minutes. 
about your family, about your finances, about your life, your marriage would be a thousand percent better than it is right now. And you might have a good marriage right now. So just think about that. But gender roles or lanes that we're in are not culturally defined. Now, you you just got to get this. Because when we talk about lanes for a husband and a wife, the culture does not like it. But gender roles are not culturally defined. They were defined in creation, which was before the development of any culture, not just our culture, but any culture. Gender roles were defined in creation, and nobody can go back and change creation. It's never going to happen again. <coughs> well, we're reading the book of Genesis, the first few chapters of the book of Genesis happened once. And that's it. See, by definition, no one can control their past. That's why so many people in our culture choose not to believe in creation. Because they can't control it. We can control culture. We can't control creation. And and here's just an FYI for you. If you choose... To dismiss creation, you also are dismissing the creator because you can't have your cake and eat it too there, bro. It's a package deal. And Cheryl, you know, we talk about roles. Cheryl doesn't submit to me as her husband because she's an idiot. Submission is something she accepts as a Christian wife. And she is instructed by her creator to do so joyfully. Trusting the Lord and resting in the reality that God will hold me, her husband, accountable for her well-being. And I know that very well. I've read the Bible. And I know that someday when I stand before the Bema seat, the reward seat, and Jesus is sitting on that seat, that's one of the key talking points of our convo is how I loved and cared for this daughter of Christ that was entrusted to me. A wife's role is not just passive submission. I want to remind you, it's an enthusiastic pursuit of the role God gave her. And let me tell you what the role is. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. And looking down into verse 21 and 22. But for Adam, looking back at the creation narrative, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. No suitable helper was found until Eve was created. Now let's talk about lanes. Cheryl's is that of helper. And don't be offended by that, ladies, because the word paraclete in the Greek is exactly the same word given to the Holy Spirit. So this is no insignificant role. You are a helper, and this is as simple as I can put it, 
because your husband needs a lot of help. And if you're married, can I, can I hear an amen? amen? Amen. So don't be offended by that. See, men need lots and lots of help. That's why men need women. And if you're single, ladies, you need to get strong. You need to build up your spiritual, <laughs> your spiritual self. Because when you get married, your guy's going to need like so much help. And if you don't want to be a helper, don't get married. You will be um, in charge of so much more as a single woman than you ever will be as a married woman. See, for a wife, that's a big part of what it means to stay in your lane. Some of the most prolific Christian women in the world have failed marriages because they became too busy writing books and leading conferences and they missed this very important point. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, that is... I don't know how else to put it. That's a sex reference. But the unity of a marriage goes well beyond this fleshly sexual union. There is this compound unity, and that's a theological term. There's this compound unity to every successful team. In fact, the Old Testament reference to the one fleshness of marriage this Ephesians 5 passage is a throwback to Genesis 2.24. And in the Hebrew, the word is ekad. And it never refers in the entire Bible, in the entire Old Testament, it never refers to a singular entity, but to a compound unity. For example, in Deuteronomy 6.4, the God of Israel is declared as ekad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is Echad. The Lord is one. But it's not a singular oneness, but a compound oneness. And we understand God to be three in one, the triune Godhead. Now, when we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have to admit, that's a winning team. And according to the Apostle Paul, from the very beginning, as he wrote to the Ephesians, from the very beginning, as spouses, we too were given the chance to come together and serve on a winning team. Two players, different roles, different lanes, but working alongside one another to defeat the opposition. And then sin entered the picture. And the fall changed everything. Sin created a role reversal. And so in the Garden of Eden, Eve stepped up and sinned and Adam sat by and did nothing about it except he eventually cooperated in that sin. And we see this still even in counseling settings and <laughs> sitting there talking to the husband and the wife and it's not uncommon to hear a husband say, but I didn't do anything. And that's a problem, brothers. We do far too little. 
And all I can say is don't be like our father Adam. Or what devastated the garden will devastate your family as well. In fact, in Genesis 3, what did God say in response to his sin? He said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, what? I was hiding. And that's what most men do. We hide from our responsibility. More often than not, we're guilty of the sin of idleness. We're guilty of the sin of not leading our families in righteousness because that's our lane. That's a dominant aspect of a husband's lane. Biblical headship, we could call leadership. But it has less to do with making decisions than making a sacrifice for those that we love. And the Bible is extremely clear. Husbands are called to be the head of the house. That's our lane. And Jesus is our example when it comes to headship. In fact, the, the Greek word in the New Testament for headship, kephale, refers to a source or an origin or a starting point. It's all about leadership. This is not a position of dominance or power. Headship does not mean that a husband rules with an iron fist. It means that we take responsibility for the development of the relationships in our families and even for our family members themselves. And Jesus is our leadership mentor for every Christian husband. Paul continues to write in Ephesians 5, 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. So love her, men, like Jesus loves you. And there are a lot of hats we wear in life as guys. But this is the most important hat we have to wear. The hat of a husband, a Christian husband. The hat of honor. To honor our wife. And some of the most prolific Christian men in the world have a failed marriage because they were too busy writing books and leading conferences. And they missed this very important point. Trust God, stay in your lane. And then number two, model honor while you teach obedience. Model honor while you teach obedience. Now this is not just a challenge to children to obey and honor your parents, but this is the question. How are they gonna learn how to do that? The New Testament word honor the English translation honor comes from the Greek timē and refers to establishing the value of something. And so the question is when we talk about honor, how much do you value your family? If you value them highly enough, it'll be reflected in the way you act. You see, honor includes obedience, but it goes well beyond obedience. Children, obey your parents and the Lord because it's the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Kids need to learn that obedience is right. But obedience is based on power. But they also need to learn that honor is better than obedience because God promised us 
that honoring, if we learn how to honor, it will lead to a long life, a long life of influence. And how do kids learn that? From the example of parents who recognize their respective lanes. You see, these two boys bleed into each other. When we trust the Lord and stay in our lane, our children learn how to honor. And how do you learn honor? By watching. How do you learn obedience? By listening. But this example of your kids watching, you guys at home, is so huge. The reason that Oikos relationships, and I told you, I told you, I told you this many times over the years, the reason that Oikos relationships are the primary generators for kingdom growth is that talk is cheap. And nobody knows that better than your kids do. And if there are 11 million sensory receptors in our brains, and there are, and then get this, 10 of the 11 million are dedicated to the sense of sight. What does that tell you? Over, over half of our entire brain is dedicated to processing what we see. That's why we don't believe everything we hear, but we'll believe it when we see it with our own eyes. See, the reason Jesus gave us the Oikos principle to transmit the gospel as a virus is because Jesus fabricated our anatomy to leverage it. He built us from the very beginning to follow people's example. See, the difference between having power and developing authority is really key here. So let me just tell you what James Hunter defines power as in his book, The Servant. Power is the ability to force or coerce someone to do your will, even if they would choose not to because of your position or your might. That's power. People submit because you can fire them or you can ground them or you can beat them. And the primary sense we use to convey power is hearing. We tell people what to do, and should we have enough power, they comply. That's why if you, if you have power as a boss at work, you tell your employees what to do, and if they want to stay employed, what do they do? They obey, because you told them. But he also defines authority this way, as a skill of getting someone to willingly do your will because of your personal influence. And what is the primary sense we use to convey influence? It's sight. So obedience is taught by speaking. Honor is taught by being an example. And as a parent, over time, you should not want to simply try to maintain a relationship of control based on power because that only works for so long. And some of you have 12, 13, 14, 15 year, year old children at home and it's shocking to you. They don't want to listen to you now. That's why it's important to understand the differences between parenting young children and parenting teenagers. It's a whole different ballgame. The ability to discipline a younger child provides a dynamic where control is maintained because we have leverage. 
We have control of young children because we have power over young children. We're bigger than young children. We have money, they got nothing. We got a house they get to live in. They can't afford afford their own home. But as a child begins to grow up, the power begins to diminish. As a result, with teenagers, you should want to make a transition from control-based relationships to authority-based relationships. And that doesn't mean that with teenagers you've completely lost power, but it is a reminder that you are losing power. And that should sober you up. And that's why with young children, it's the power card that we play. And with adult children, all we have is authority. So it's during these teenage years that we need to make that transition, right? See, control, power, that can be taken. You can take control if you have power. But authority cannot be taken. It can only be given. And that rule even applied to Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 18. What does it say there? Read it with me. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. And how the triune Godhead all work together is ultimately a mystery to me and probably to you. We believe that omnipotent God is the ultimate source of authority and he doesn't need to be given anything. He is inherently powerful and inherently authoritative. But to my point, in the incarnation, the son was given authority by the father. Authority is given. Power is taken. Even when Jesus was here, he had the power to take control of any and every situation. But that wasn't what the first advent was about. The first advent was about saving us. Later on in his second advent, he actually will take control and there's just a lot of explosions everywhere. But see, the first time he showed up, it was developing spiritual authority, not taking control. And that's why the Jewish people rejected him as Messiah. They wanted a controlling Messiah and they would get one. But the first time didn't work out the way they thought. But what, when Jesus would teach you, look at Mark chapter one, verse 22. Here's the descriptor of Jesus. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had what? He had authority. Not like the rest of the teachers of the law that because of their title had control. See, for Cheryl and, and for me, we could control our kids, but that was a long time ago. Now we got no control. We have absolutely no leverage over our children anymore. And if we didn't have spiritual influence in their lives, we wouldn't have a healthy relationship with them today. And now they actually still call and ask questions. They occasionally want our perspective. They don't dread coming for a visit. They respect us. And that's because when we had them at home, we didn't use discipline as the only tool in the shed. The power of example was so huge for us. 
And we didn't do any of this perfectly. Cheryl and I argued too much, and at times we showed dishonor rather than honor. But we had to provide an environment that reflected a pattern of ongoing honor toward one another as husband and wife in order to generate spiritual authority in the eyes of our kids. Mark Twain said this about parenting, and I'm quoting, things run along pretty smoothly until your kid reaches 13. That's the time you need to stick them in a barrel, hammer the lid down nice and snug, and feed them through the knot hole. And then, about the time he turns 16, just plug up the knot hole. <laughs> and I know there are a lot of hormones that work in young teenagers. But I think much of the tension between teenagers and parents is due to the required change in approach in raising teenagers versus raising younger children. The effectiveness of power has a shelf life, folks. <coughs> and as a parent, it lasts about 11 years. Quite frankly, many parents don't understand that a successful shift toward influencing your kids requires that they learn how to honor, not simply obey. And you can control your children younger children through what I call disciplinary events. It's an event-based parenting. If there's disobedience, there's discipline. That's an event. We can get used to that, and we're shocked when that season ends. And we say things, we, we, we say, that, what do you mean no? Right? Well, it's a whole new world now, bro. That's, that's right. And then we, why do I have to do that? And then what's the response? Because I said so. <laughs> you get that? Because I said so. Obedience, the primary way we learn to obey is through hearing what people in power say. Actually, if that's the best you got in any one of those events, because I said so, yeah, that's pretty weak. And so you might want to reevaluate what's going on in that moment. You should always have a better reason to expect obedience than you're the parent and they're not. And it's true, you are the parent and they're not, and they should obey. But it's not going to land well. I just know this. You will, I'm just going to be a prophet now, prophet Tom, you will lose the ability to control your children. But this ongoing example of honoring, primarily honoring your spouse, as a wife honors her husband through a gentle and quiet spirit and submits, as a husband honors his wife by loving her as Christ loves his church. Christ-like leadership. That, all that adds up to make a huge difference as the power card begins to lose its effectiveness. And it will lose its effectiveness. Inc. Magazine reported a few years ago that researchers had combed through thousands of songs and found one word that predicts a hit, a hit song. In other words, the more often this word shows up in a song, the better chances of it being uh, a hit song. You know what the word is? You. 
And when it comes to your family, the more times you honor others, the more likely your family will be healthy in 20 years, in 30 years, in 50 years. See, it doesn't matter how you feel about somebody nearly as much as how you behave towards somebody. And what husbands mean when they say they love their wife and what wives mean when they say they love their husband and what parents mean when they say they love their kids all too often would be more like the Greek word phileo, which is in the New Testament, but it's a brotherly kind of love. In other words, I have this warm feeling about these people. Do you love your your wife? Yes, I have a warm feeling about her. Do you love your husband? I have a warm feeling about him. But the New Testament is clear. From Jesus to the apostles, healthy relationships require not phileo love, but agape love. Selfless love. An active love, not a feeling love. Because an active love, agape love, exposes the power of honor. It's pretty hard to uh, teach on this subject without raising this passage, elevating this passage and, and reading it at least. Love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast. This is agape love, by the way. This is every time the word agape shows up in the Greek New Testament in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Agape love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Agape love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. And agape love, this is the kicker, man. I mean, it's either true or it's not. Agape love never fails. A few months ago, Pastor Todd was sharing this passage with our staff team at one of our monthly breakfasts. And he asked us to replace the word love in that passage with our first name. And for me, the passage then read this way. Tom is patient. Tom is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Tom does not dishonor others. Tom is not self-seeking. Tom is not easily angered. Tom keeps no record of wrongs. Tom does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Tom always protects. He always trusts. Tom always hopes. Tom always perseveres. Tom never fails. Yeah, that last one could be a problem. <laughs> so I just read that to you thinking, it's pretty funny actually. But the bottom line for me is, would Cheryl say those things are accurate descriptors of me? What would she say? There have been times when she would be able to honestly say, no, Tom has not been those things today. And she'd be right. And that's why I have to readdress this topic and take inventory of this list every day of my life. And you see, if over time, the answer generally becomes yes, that's Tom most of the time, then I have begun to understand the lame I'm in. And I am becoming an example of the power that is generated by honoring others, especially her. 
Anyway, that's how we have found generating spiritual authority works in our home. Just wanted to share that. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for giving us a great uh, time uh, today, great time of worship. Uh, we've opened your word and uh, we've looked there for answers. You know, Lord, we're all looking for answers. And we thank you that your word is an answer book for us. And would we, as family members, as family leaders, take it to heart? And regardless of what the culture says, Father, would we stay in our lane that you prescribed for us through creation? And would we, would we teach our children how to honor as we honor them, as we especially honor our spouse? Would we do that? At least better this week than we did last week, simply because we were reminded of its power today. And with everybody's head bowed and whether you're watching online or maybe in the room today, I just want to ask the question, have you given your life to God? You know, you could try so many of these things that we have been learning consistently throughout the series and fail simply because you're not plugged in yet. And the way we become plugged in spiritually to this incredible power source the Bible describes as the Holy Spirit is to receive the one who sent the Holy Spirit to us as our Lord and Savior, and that would be Jesus. And that starts with an act of humility. So here we go. Are you willing to admit that you're a sinner? Maybe are you willing to admit simply that you've, you've come up empty? At home, you've come up empty. And you say, Lord, I admit my sin, and I believe that Jesus is the one who can pull me out of this mess. He can save me from my sin. And so I choose to place my faith in Christ. And by placing your faith in Jesus, you're willing to follow the prescription he gives you for success. And that's all about faith. And I'd encourage you, if you don't know Christ, admit, believe, and choose. A, B, C. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple thought. But Father, as, as people might be opening their hearts to you for the first time, just ask you'd uh, just fill them up um, with encouragement and hope and confidence, not only in their salvation, but in their future. In Jesus' great name, we pray. Amen.